You are listening to an audio sermon of First Baptist Church of Arlington, Washington. Our mission is to know Jesus and make Him known. Thank you for joining us. Here is today's message. Well, last week we asked the question, what makes or breaks a church? Or what makes a good church good? As we introduced ourselves to this precious book, we saw that the Thessalonian church was a good church. It was a bragworthy church. It was an excellent church. It was the church that Paul would go around from city to city and he would tell people, you guys need to look to the Thessalonians. You need to be like them. They are growing. They are worthy of imitation. And we can learn a lot from studying this church and and following this first century church. But What was it, though, about them that was so special? Specifically, what was the thing? What is the key to this church? And why was Paul so proud of them? Why why did their example fill his heart and and make... what What was the thing that made their ministry so effective? Well, we know that they weren't a perfect church, and we are thankful for that. There are no perfect churches. Second Thessalonians tells us that some of them had even become lazy because they had bad eschatology. And yet they were a thriving church. They were a good church. They were a healthy church. An imperfect church, yes, but still healthy because they majored in the majors and they minored on the minors. So what are those majors and what was it exactly that, that made their ministry so effective? First Thessalonians tells us, that it was simply one thing, good, old-fashioned gospel ministry. This was a word-driven church. This is a church that did it by the book. In verse 5, Paul says, Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. In other words, they didn't just read about it. The word came to them through powerful preaching. Verse 8, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we have nothing to say about you. So God's word and their testimony was spreading like wildfire. Look at chapter 2, verse 13. He says, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. This was a word-driven church. Unfortunately, the modern evangelical landscape, as you look around, as you visit from church to church, so many churches look nothing like this. Instead of powerful word-driven preaching, undeniable word-driven evangelism, and total word-driven submission and acceptance to the word, churches are full of manipulative gimmicks, entertainment, and clever ideas. I've mentioned before that when I was younger, my church that I grew up in experienced several pastoral failures, and I gave them all nicknames. We had the liar, the adulterer, the thief, as well as the professor, the illustrator, and the one that I like to affectionately refer to as the flake. But out of all of them, the one who probably did the most damage 
was a guy that we'll call the evangelist. The evangelist. He came to us from a large church in Tennessee where he had discovered a clever way to streamline the art of the altar call. He had different colored lines painted on the floor. And when it was time for the invitation, he would say something like, if you are a first-time visitor or if this is the first time you have ever committed your life to, to the Lord Jesus Christ, take the red line. Or if you're here to rededicate your life, take the blue line. Or if you're here for healing, take the green line. Or if you need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, take the yellow line and so forth. And at the end of each line, he had trained volunteers who would specialize in whatever that color meant. And they were there to pray for you. He said that God had told him that he would personally save 100,000 people before God would bring him home. I can't remember the exact number, but I think he said that he had personally saved 20 or 30,000 people at that time. I remember saying something like, bro, you got to slow down. I mean, unless you really want to meet Jesus fast. I mean, he's an interesting guy. I didn't really have the opportunity to get to know him well. But I'll say he did the most damage out of all of them, out of all of those false teachers and poor examples that we had in our church growing up. Because he emptied the church of many of her believers, and instead he filled her with unbelievers. He organized exciting community events and even struck a deal with a couple of nurses locally to help provide uh, health checkups and local care from our church. All good things. He gave out free hot dogs and electronics and all kinds of goodies. And he trimmed his messages down. He replaced them with 15-minute sermonettes for Christianettes. I remember one time for Easter, he preached a 12-minute message and never once mentioned the resurrection. I was shocked. I didn't even know that was possible until I experienced it. It was all about the Easter egg hunt and the iPad raffle after the service. At first, the congregation was excited about loving their community and making an impact. But in reality, the opposite happened. More and more unbelievers filled the church until it wasn't a church any longer. Many of the faithful moved on to other churches that were full of Christians because the majority of the people who came were not there for the gospel. They were there for a free hot dog. They were there for an opportunity to gain something else. So guess what happened when the evangelists decided to move on? The free hot dogs went away as well. And so did the hungry masses of unconverted consumers. He emptied the church. And he went on to keep saving people with a message that doesn't save. So what makes or breaks a church? And what makes a good church good? It's not manipulative gimmicks. It's not entertainment or clever ideas. It's not pragmatism or seeker sensitivity or appealing to the flesh with fleshly promises or fleshly goods. That's not it. It's simple, folks. There is only one thing that truly makes a church a church and truly makes it stand out above all the others and gives it its power, and that is simply the gospel. The gospel. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. Not pragmatism, manipulative gimmicks, entertainment, or clever ideas. No, the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. 
Only the gospel has the power to save a sinner from hell. Only the gospel can breathe life into the dead. Only the gospel can turn a self-lover into a God-worshipper. Nothing else has the power to save and change a life except for the gospel. Nothing. Churches who take their eyes off of the gospel are dying, dead, or worse, they were never born to begin with. A gospel ministry is the only ministry with the power of God coursing through it. If a ministry doesn't have the gospel, it doesn't have power. So an effective ministry is both dramatic and simple at the same time. It's dramatic because people are born again. Lives are changed. The power of God changes things. But it's also simple because that ministry is fueled by one power source. Good, old-fashioned gospel ministry. The title of today's message is The Committed Church. Because the Thessalonians were undeniably constrained and changed by the power of the gospel. And as a result, they had an effective ministry. So this morning, I wanted to zero in on three observations from our text. As Paul thanks God for this ministry, for this young, healthy church, what does he focus on? Now, obviously, this passage contains more than three observations. I remember whenever I was in seminary, they would give us assignments where they would say, okay, here's a, short sp- here's a verse or here's a passage. I want you to find 10 observations and write them down. And then all of a sudden, that turned into 15, and then 20, and then 30, and 50 observations at times. And I remember banging my head against the wall, being like, Lord, you have only spoken so much in this verse. I can't find 50 observations. And yet, as time went on, and as our education grew, and as we spent more time in God's Word, those observations just kept coming. Because it is so deep. God's Word is like that. You will never be able to mine it for all of its riches. There is so much here in God's Word. So I don't want to give the impression that there are only three things to take away here. There's certainly a lot more. But these are important takeaways for us, these broad sweeping reminders as we prayerfully pursue a faithful ministry here at First Baptist Church. But first of all, we see that effective ministry requires divine enablement. Divine enablement. Notice he says, we give thanks to God always for all of you. He says, let me act as the spokesman for Silas, Timothy, and myself. We are constantly thanking God for you. In fact, the language and the grammar here point to a regular habit of giving thanks in the strongest way. So we can assume that they did this daily, if not more frequently even, throughout the day. These pastors were continually thanking God for the Thessalonians, and not just the Thessalonians that they liked the most. Notice he says, always for all of you, as in all of them, even the few who challenged Paul and got on his nerves and crawled under his skin. It's hard to believe, but Paul had that. There were people there, even within that church. We know that there were more than a few. Because Paul will, in this same letter here a little bit later on, take time to personally defend his ministry and remind them of his excellent conduct while he was with them. The implication being that some of them were accusing him of not being above board. They accused him of showing up simply to make money off of them and to get out of town as quickly as he could. 
So even in a good church like Thessalonica, there were critical people, misunderstandings and false assumptions floating around. And yet Paul could honestly say, my heart is bursting with gratitude, with love for you all, with thankfulness. And these are all wonderful observations from verse 2, the frequency and the scope of his prayers. They were encouraging for us. But let's not forget to step back and admire the landscape of this little verse. Who is Paul praying to? He's not praying to them. He's praying to God. Who is it that he thanks here in this passage? He's thanking God. Why? Because he recognizes that God is the one who deserves to be thanked. Notice he doesn't thank the Thessalonians at all, anywhere in this passage. He doesn't thank them for doing well, which is odd because that's typically what we do. When somebody does something that we need to thank them for, we automatically thank them. We let them know how much we appreciate their efforts. We express kindness and gratitude towards them so they know how much we appreciate them. But Paul doesn't do that. He doesn't thank them. He thanks God because he knows that even the best church is incapable of accomplishing anything for the kingdom without divine enablement. If God is not in the ministry, then that ministry is not in God. And it will not produce fruit. I mean, what are we? We can't make anything grow. All we can do is plant and water. One man plants, another waters. But only God can bring the growth. And that's true for all of us, both individually and corporately. If you want to have an effective ministry, an effective witness, an effective testimony to the power of God in your life, then your life needs to be consumed with God and with the things of God. In everything, you need to depend on God because apart from Him, what do we have? Nothing. We have nothing. He is our everything. And everything that we do has real value if it comes from Him. Everything else, all of this other stuff that we consume ourselves with, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, it's all going to burn. And then as Pastor Bill followed up and affirmed, what did he say? It's all going to burn. Now, does that make it worthless? No. But it should. It should help us to prioritize our efforts, to prioritize our gaze, and to use our time wisely, knowing that the day is coming when we will be delivered out of all of this and we will live with him forever in a land in which righteousness dwells. So it is appropriate. It's appropriate for Paul to encourage the Thessalonians, but not by thanking them, but by thanking God for his work through them, because God is the one who enables them both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. And that brings us to our second big picture observation. Not only does effective ministry require divine enablement, it also requires deliberate encouragement. Deliberate encouragement. Look at the first phrase of verse 3. He adds, remembering before our God and Father. Remembering before our God and Father. So he says, I am always thanking, mentioning, and remembering when I pray for you. Thanking, mentioning, and remembering. And I do it all the time. On one hand, this shouldn't surprise us at all. I mean, this isn't odd for Paul to start a letter out this way. All of his letters begin with thanksgiving, except for two, Galatians and 2 Corinthians. Those are the only two 
that don't begin with thankfulness for them. Those two have so much correction in them, he just skips all the thankfulness and he gets right to the point. So on one hand, it's common for Paul to start out his, his prayer like this, for him to start out with a prayer of thanks in his letters. But on the other hand, it's not common for Paul to gush this much. Normally he says, I'm thankful for you, and he moves on. But notice how he gushes in this text. He loves them so much. He doesn't usually express that he is always constantly, continually remembering them and praying for them and thanking God for them. But that's what he does here. And notice that he's not keeping his prayer life private. He's not keeping it to himself. He's telling them all of this for a reason. He wants to deliberately encourage them. He wants them to know that they are loved, that they are cared for, and that they are spiritually supported by the brotherhood. Because we all need encouragement. We all do, whether we're being persecuted or not. Perhaps you've heard the story of an elderly man who once approached the famous 19th century poet and artist Dante Bartiel Rossetti. The old man had some sketches and drawings, and he wanted Rossetti to look them over and tell him if they were any good or not, or if they were at least full of potential for talent to someday grow and blossom into something of beauty. Rossetti looked them over carefully, and after the first few, he knew that they were worthless, showing not even the least sign of artistic talent. But Rossetti was a kind man, So he told the elderly man as gently as possible that the pictures were without value and that they showed very little talent. I don't know how you do that, but Rossetti somehow pulled it off. He was sorry, but he could not lie to the man. The visitor was disappointed, but seemed to expect Rossetti's judgment. He then apologized for taking up his time and asked if he would just take a few more minutes to look at another set of sketches, this time a group that was compiled and put together by a young uh, art student. Rossetti looked over the second batch of sketches, and immediately he was enthused over the, the talent that they produced, that they revealed. These, he said, ah, these are good. This young man, whoever he is, he has great talent. He should be given every help and encouragement in his career as an artist. He has a great future if he will just work hard and if he will stick with it. Rossetti could see that his words had moved the old fellow deeply. And so he asked, who is this fine young artist? Is he your son? Is he related to you? Is he your pupil? How do you know him? No, said the old man sadly. It is me 40 years ago. If only I had heard your praise then. For you see, I got discouraged and I gave it up too soon. We all need encouragement. Every last one of us. Unfortunately, encouragement doesn't come naturally to the flesh. Discouragement is easy. Encouragement is hard. It requires purposefulness, intentionality, and consideration. Paul prayed for others often, yes, but he also went beyond that. He let them know that he was praying for them, often, with a thankful heart and with thoughtful deliberation of mind, with purposefulness, he remembered them. Church, family, I hope you know that like Paul, I think about you all the time. And I pray for you 
often. Even when I'm on vacation, I can't stop. Even when I'm away, like at a conference this last week, I could not pull my heart away from you. And before anyone says, well, that's to be expected, you're the pastor, you need to be involved in the church, let me deliberately encourage you to deliberately encourage others. Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Brother, sister, your words have the power to kill. They also have the power to revive, to regenerate, and to give life to the dead and dying. So let's weigh our words and let's evaluate their effectiveness before we release them into the atmosphere. Let's think about what we say. An excellent related verse for us to all memorize is Ephesians 4.19, where he says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Friends, this doesn't happen by accident. It's a matter of choice, not chance. As we think, thank, and pray for one another, we need to encourage each other to keep on keeping on, and we need to let each other know that we are doing that. That's number two. Effective ministry requires divine enablement and deliberate encouragement. Finally, effective ministry requires devoted effort. Devoted effort. Look at the rest of the verse. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Note the triad of Christian virtues here. Faith, hope, and love. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? I mean, this triad appears a number of times all throughout Paul's letters, so let's just go ahead and take a few minutes here to look at a few. Staying in 1 Thessalonians, turn to chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And look at verse 8. He says, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. There we have it. Faith, love, and hope. He says, faith and love will be your breastplate. It will protect your heart. And hope will be your helmet, the hope of salvation. It will protect your mind. Now let's turn to Romans 5. Romans 5. And let's see what he has to say there, starting in verse 2. Romans chapter 5. He says, through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace into which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So there's faith and hope. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Flip over to Galatians 5. Galatians chapter 5. This is another famous section of Scripture. 
where Paul zeroes in on these three virtues. Galatians chapter 5. Look at verses 5 and 6. He says, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Again, faith, hope, and love. And then finally, let's head over to Colossians 1. Colossians 1. In verses 4 and 5, he says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. And then, of course, no need to turn there now, but we have 1 Corinthians 13, 13. There you have all three succinctly laid out, saying, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, and of course the greatest of these is love. You see this trifecta all over Paul's contributions to Scripture. It's the litmus test for true spiritual life. It's the character of a truly committed church full of, that is full of truly committed Christians. But here he adds these qualifiers to each virtue within our text. And together, they tell us exactly what a committed church is known for. For starters, a committed church is known for evident faith. Evident faith. He says, your work of faith. This word work in the Greek, it's the word ergon, where we get our our English word for energy. You see, true faith is active. It's energetic. It's productive. It works. James 2 says, faith without action is dead, meaning it's fake. You certainly can't add to the work of Christ. You are saved by grace and by grace alone. So certainly it's nothing that we bring in our hands. It's no work that we produce that is going to get us saved. But if you are truly saved by that grace of God, you will produce works after the fact. You will. Because real faith produces real work. Jesus said the same thing in the first parable. If the soil is good and the person believes, they will indeed bear fruit. In other words, their internal faith will manifest itself through external work. So you can spot a true believer by the life they live. The genuine Christian doesn't make excuses for their sin. They don't carry a take-it-or-leave-it, laissez-faire attitude towards Scripture. And they aren't passive, they are active. They get in the game, and they put the work in for the Lord. The committed church is known for an evident faith, for a faith that can be seen. Next, they are known for exhausting love. Exhausting love. Or as Paul likes to put it, he says, your labor of love. This word labor is not the same word that we just saw for work. Obviously, it's different in our English translations. That's because there's a different word here in Greek. This word means toil, trouble, and difficulty. It's a much more intense word than the word work. It's hard. This word refers to the actual pain of work. I like how one of the leading lexicons puts it. It says, it it defines this word as to engage in activity that is burdensome. 
that is burdensome. I don't know if we tend to think of love that way, to think of a love as being burdensome. So Paul is encouraged here, and he thanks God constantly because these Thessalonians, they're not sitting on the sidelines. They're not warming the bench. They're in the game, and they are actively breaking a sweat. They are putting the effort in. They are actively working in a love that is burdensome. It hurts. It's hard. It requires extraordinary effort. And the Thessalonians, they had such a love for God and for others. And we must love to the point of exhaustion. We must love each other, even when it's hard. We must love God, even when we look around and we, we can't understand what's happening. We can't make sense of it. We need to love each other and love the Lord with a love that is burdensome to the point of exhaustion. And then lastly, the committed church is known for enduring hope. Enduring hope. He says, in steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the ultimate level of commitment. The word steadfastness, often translated endurance, means to bear up under a great weight. It means to thrive, to survive under pressure. And this is the ultimate level of commitment. It's a stubborn kind of perseverance that refuses to bend when everyone around you breaks. It says, my hope is in the Lord. Therefore, I will not let go and I will not give in. Hope is the helmet for the mind and the anchor for the heart. It shields and secures the Christian when our world falls apart. How and why? Well, because of Christ. As the song goes, Christ, the sure and steady anchor, as we face the waves of death, when the trials give way to glory, as we draw our final breath, we will cross that great horizon, clouds behind and life ashore, and the calm will be the better for the storms that we endure. It is our hope in Christ. It is that blessed hope that we are certain of. This isn't a hope like, gee, I really hope Jesus does come back someday. This is a hope that is secure, this is a hope that is confident, that knows that Christ, his work, his person, and his promise, that whatever we face is worth it because of Christ, because we know who he is. We know what he has done. We know that his blood, his precious blood, has been applied to us. Friend, the committed church is known for these three virtues, evident faith, exhausting love, and enduring hope. Calvin called verse 3 a brief definition of true Christianity. Bingle said, in these virtues, the whole of Christianity consists. And Richard Mayhew summarizes it nicely when he adds, their faith in Christ had been validated by their works. Their love of God had been demonstrated by strenuous labor on his behalf. And their hope of eternal life had been expressed by patient endurance in the midst of trial and tribulation. In other words, this was a committed church. This was a church that stood out above the rest because they produced fruit, because the Lord was working in them. He was working through them to make them different. Such a church could only come about through divine enablement, deliberate encouragement, and devoted effort. Well, Tennessee Williams tells a story 
of someone who lost their focus and forgot their love. It's a story of Jacob Brodsky, a shy Russian Jew whose father owned a bookstore. The older Brodsky wanted his son to go to college. The boy, on the other hand, desired nothing but to marry Lila, his childhood sweetheart. A French girl as effusive, vital, and ambitious as he was contemplative and retiring. A couple of months after young Brodsky went to college, his father fell ill and died. The son returned home, buried his father, didn't go back to school. Instead, he married his love. The couple then moved into the apartment above the bookstore, and Brodsky took over its management. The life of books fit him perfectly, but it cramped her style. She wanted more adventure, and she found it, or so she thought, when she met an agent who praised her beautiful singing voice and enticed her to tour Europe with him and a vaudeville company. Brodsky was devastated. At their parting, he reached into his pocket and he handed her the key to the front door of the bookstore. He said, you had better keep this because you will want it someday. Your love is not so much less than mine that you can get away from it. You will come back to me someday. And when you do, I will be waiting. She kissed him and left. To escape the pain that he felt, Brodsky withdrew deep into his bookstore. And he took to reading as someone else might have taken to drink. He spoke little, did little, and could most times be found at a large desk near the rear of his shop. He immersed himself in his books and he waited and he waited and he waited for his love to return. Nearly 15 years after they parted, at Christmas time, she did return. But when Brodsky rose from the reading desk that had been his place of escape for all that time, he did not take the love of his life for anyone other than just another ordinary customer. Do you want a book, he asked. It startled her that he did not recognize her. But she gained possession of herself and replied, I do want a book, but I've forgotten the name of it. She then told him a story of childhood sweethearts, a story of newly married couples and, and how they lived in, in an apartment above the bookstore, and a story about this young, ambitious wife who left to seek a career, who enjoyed great success, but could never relinquish the key that her husband had given her when they parted. She told him the story thinking, surely this will bring him to himself. This will bring him to his senses. But his face showed no recognition. Gradually, she realized that he had lost touch with his heart's desire. That he no longer knew the purpose of his waiting and grieving. That now all he remembered was the waiting and the grieving itself. She cried, you remember it. You must remember it. It is the story of Lila and Jacob. After a long, bewildered pause, he said, there is something familiar about the story. I think I have read it somewhere. It comes to me that it is something by Tolstoy. Dropping the key, she fled the shop. And Brodsky returned to his desk to his reading unaware that the love that he had waited for for so long had come and gone. Friends, if we aren't careful, 
the same thing will happen to us. We can so easily get caught up in the busy work of the church. We can so easily get caught up in today's politics and all of the things that are happening around us as the world shakes and turns on its axis. We can get caught up in ministry trends, strategies for church growth. We can get caught up in so many things. And we can forget all about our bridegroom and the gospel. The trifecta of Christian virtues are replaced with pragmatism, manipulative gimmicks, entertainment, and clever ideas. Tennessee Williams' 1931 story titled Something by Tolstoy should remind us to stay focused, to stay committed to our first and greatest love to the Lord Jesus Christ and good old-fashioned gospel ministry, to a powerful message of a perfect Savior who came into the world to save sinners. Friends, we can never outgrow the gospel, that we are all pitiful, worthless sinners worthy of hell for our cosmic crimes against an infinitely perfect and holy God. And yet this God loved us so much to send his son to stand in the place of sinners, yes, but to also live a perfect life, to be tempted in every way, to be ridiculed, to be mocked, to be hated by this world, and yet live a perfect life full of perfect obedience to the Father. And then to suffer, to die in the place of sinners, to take the punishment of sinners for anyone who will call upon his name, anyone who will believe, who will place their heart and their trust in this Savior for their salvation, for the forgiveness of their sins. That God the Father would be so pleased to crush his own Son for our sake that he would pour out all of his wrath, all of his judgment, all of his anger against our sin upon that perfect sacrifice. So that now when the Father looks at us, he no longer sees our sin. Instead, he sees that perfect life of Christ. Because all of our sin has been paid for at the cross. All of it. Friends, sin will be paid for. It will be dealt with in one of two places either at the cross or at the final judgment. And I pray that everyone in this room, I hope and pray that your sins have been paid for at the cross. Because if they haven't, you will stand before the Lord one day and you will have to give an account for your sins and you will pay for your sins. I pray that that doesn't happen for anyone in this room. That we have all placed our faith, our hope, our trust in this perfect Savior. Because we are all great sinners in need of a great Savior. Church, we cannot afford to lose our focus. We must remain committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's not lose our focus as the church, as the bride of Christ. Let's not get caught up in this world's books or its distractions. Instead, let's turn to the Lord and let's rely on Him for divine enablement. Let's turn to each other and let's practice deliberate encouragement. And let's turn to the evidences of true Christianity with devoted effort as we thank the Lord for his greatness, his worthiness, and for each other. So that come what may, whatever this world throws at us, let's be a committed church.
Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you again for your word. Thank you for the power of the gospel. We know that there is no power anywhere on this planet. Kings come and go. We know that you are sovereign over it all. And yet there is tremendous power in the gospel that you have provided. God, I pray that if there is anyone here who has not bowed the knee to King Jesus, that you would work in their hearts, that they would see their need for the Savior, that they would cry out in repentance and belief, and that they will be saved. God, work in hearts today. And for those of us who have been saved, who have been redeemed by this precious gospel, Lord, may we never become distracted. May we never be pulled left or right or fall into those traps of pragmatism or thinking that we're clever or that we need to add to the gospel or we need to dress it up or make it more attractive to the world. But Lord, may we instead focus on the main thing. May we focus on that which truly saves the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, work in our hearts. May we never take our eyes off of the cross. May we never look to the left or to the right, but may we follow Jesus in every way. Lord, we love you. And again, we thank you. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for crushing him in our place. Thank you for calling us out of darkness, for giving us that new birth from above, for replacing our hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. And may we walk worthy of the calling to which we have been called. We love you, Lord. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen.